Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Okay, welcome to LawPod. My name is Alice Diver, and I'm a lecturer in the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast. I'm joined today by Professor Emily Hipchin of Brown University. I will let her introduce herself. Hi, I'm I'm Emily Hipchin. Um, I am a I direct the nonfiction writing program at Brown University, but I think more salient to this conversation, I'm the editor of Adoption and Culture, which is the journal of the Alliance for the Study of Adoption and Culture, which is how Alice and I got to um, meet each other through the yes. journal and through this particular work. Um, I'm also part of the executive committee, and I edit a book series for the Ohio State University Press. We publish scholarship on adoption and culture, so that's kind of who we are, who I am. Yes, that's where we're. We have, we have adoption in common. We have an interest, obviously, in adoption, professional and and personal, I guess. Um, and yeah, we're going to talk about the latest edition of Adoption and Culture, uh, because I was lucky enough to be in, included in it. I have a piece included based on a, a recent paper. So we thought we would talk around the themes in that. Should I sum up what, 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 I'm, what I, I'm raving about in the, in the piece? Would that be a starting oh, yeah. point? Please Maybe. do it. I mean, it's a fascinating piece. It, um, oh, thank you. it goes in so many different directions. It's got law, it's got Frankenstein, it's got, um, I think Wuthering Heights is in there too, like Heathcliff, oh, yes. right? Yeah, got Wuthering Heathcliff. I mean, there's so many, one of the things to think about or to, to maybe we can talk about at some point is how often figures, um, adoptive figures and adoption itself just kind of shows up everywhere and then people don't notice. And then as soon as you're in, um, you're kind of in the field, it becomes clear how common uh, uh it is in all of our cultural productions to see adoptees, to see families formed in adoption or outside of the, uh, outside of biological kinning, um, and and it, it becomes like everywhere. And so, in a sense, um, what Alice's paper, your your paper is doing or did, was to talk across all of these different iterations of that particular of that particular kinship paradigm. And it was. Um, was fun to see it and then fun to see it contextualized in all of the legal work that you do generally. Now, this isn't the first paper I think I've seen from you, right? A long time ago, didn't we publish yeah. something about the law? And um, when you were working very early in the discipline. Yes, that is correct. Good while ago, I think it was 2011, maybe. So I suppose mm -hmm. about 10 years ago, um, I think I did a paper 2010, again, on a similar theme the 2011 one i think looked at un um mm -hmm. jurisprudence various country reports more on origin deprivation so looking not just adoption but also at surrogacy at, and anyone being deprived of ancestry and not having the right to find things out to discover your genetic relatives so that was my my soapbox my, my bugbear but the irony is that you know about five years ago i did manage to track down birth family, not through law. Law still has the veto there and still would, you know, would, would regard me as this, this creature. But yeah, DNA testing, I just happened to find an aunt by chance, who was, you know, seeking out her, her indigenous roots. Um, I'm older, 
than her, but she's my aunt. So it's just all her fault, you know. So it's 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 nice to be writing from a perspective of of being in reunion with half of the of the genetic family, the birth family. So that was good. Oh, but why literature? I still maintain if you want to bring about change on something like this, something emotional, law's not best equipped. People will listen to fiction, movies like Philomena. As you say, we're coming into Christmas, watch out, adoption will be everywhere. There's bound to be a, you're not my mother, yes, I am moment. You know, Star Wars, I'm not your, I am your father. That We're going to be bombarded with it, but we're used to it now. You know, it's, 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 you know, that it, it didn't ever occur to me. It's very strange, the sensitivities about these that are so um, variant. So you, uh, you watch things and you're and, and it's only like the third time through or like you're standing in the shower a week later that you realize that you've watched an adoption narrative which is elf do you know elf i it's, yes it's, it's watch they watch it every year in mm-hmm. our house and i can cope with it because will farrell if he's willing to wear those mustard tights then i can <laughs> forgive the way that they treat you know the whole adoption thing at the start he makes up for it and when he jumps on the tree and stuff so yeah the kids have always watched it and loved it and you know tried to jump on the tree when they were small you know, can we do that no no you cannot no. um but they sort of get and they always watch my response the bit where he crawls he's at the he's orphanage well number one he's not an orphan and he crawls into the little bag and it's it's not maybe dealt with very sensitively but i can forgive will farrell just purely because everything that, that, that follows, you know, um, the mustard type. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it is a typical, it's a pretty typical Christmas adoption narrative. Oh, I yeah. mean, it's all about gifting and, um, and, and the obscuration of, of parenting. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's pretty typical. It is a pretty typical example, but it, again, I think I must've seen it two or three times because of course here every year, and yeah. like elf, elf, elf. After it was um, produced, I I just didn't even notice, and now I can't help but notice. And it, yeah. And it's it's got all of those sort of holiday tropes that you're gonna see, all over the place again and again, as you say. Yes, and the the convenient resolution of sort of you know father's horrified mother is conven- conveniently absent because it seems to be in a lot of the fictions, if somebody's passed away, that's them conveniently dealt with so elf doesn't have to to go and find his genetic mother um and again i will also you know because james Kahn was was sonny corleone i can cope again with his his responses i i quite like the little anger bits so it's you know it's interesting but yeah it does fall into the various especially the resolution thing of we're all fine now you know there is at least the flawed reunion and there's some bumps in the road before it's sort of, you know, it works out. Well, they couldn't, wouldn't dare with a Christmas movie. You're not going to have people running, screaming on a permanent now, basis. Uh, <laughs> the dead birth mother trope is um, a longstanding one. I think uh, BJ Lipton talks about it a, a great deal, um, but I don't think she's the first one. So, I mean, it may all, it may all go all the way back to somebody like Jean Patton. I, I don't remember exactly, mm-hmm. but that woman has to be out of the way somehow in order for there to be a um a kinning a real kinning in the adoptive family and i don't understand that at all except it must be it must be about the blood myth i don't know anyhow yeah. just, i guess maybe it's the, the orphan myth of you have been you you are an orphan even if you're not that's the bit that bothers me it's i think i was i was orphanized i'll give you that 
but I, I, I don't think at any stage I was an orphan. I, I, an orphan I had, we, we all had the living, generally had living relatives, kinfolk, siblings, half siblings, whatever's there. So it's, I that's spent the first the three months of my life in an orphanage, but I had, at that point I had, I don't know, uncountable relatives, like lots and lots of blood relatives, but I was in an orphanage because they had been abandoned there. And somehow that um, all that paperwork made me an orphan when nobody was dead. That, so, that yeah. sticks in the crop. I mean, same, eight, eight months for and, and when my experience. Mm-hmm. So you do wonder what was, you know, what was happening. I and mean, when you've got things like Buddy the Elf, it's very glossed over everywhere. It's just sort of, but you're here now, you're fine. You know, it's very sort of, it's handier for people to, to sort of deal with that. Um, as I've referred to myself as a rescue dog to someone a, a few months back and they were like, you can't say that. And I thought, yes, I can. And I will bite you if you, if you <laughs> annoy me. <laughs> so yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's an, that's an interesting one. So, but the, the piece, I think we mentioned Frankenstein and the, mm-hmm. and the monsters. Uh, so I was sort of in my, in my cheery way of uh, uh, comparing some of the characters you know, to monsters, to to to, to talk about the monstrous outcomes, the monstrous things that that law can do. Uh, so we had obviously Frankenstein's creature has to, has to be in there because he's got uh, all the the heartwarming themes. He's got the abandonment, the rejection, the fruitless search, and a bit of self harm along the way. And then with Never Let Me Go, the clones on their search. Obviously, they don't get reunion, and the information they get is heartbreaking and disappointing um that they're they're told we we let you do art to even work it to work out if you maybe had souls so the whole dehumanizing you know you're you're abhuman you're not not worthy etc that's hammered home you know at sort of at the end and then heathcliff who i know normally we wouldn't wouldn't he wouldn't get included um i think why not because he has the society has helped to make him the monster and he has got this unknown ancestry that's never discovered unlike a lot of the heroic you know tales where someone has reunion at the end he never you know we we just never know and we have to sort of go on with that so and i guess the point was that if you are dehumanized like that from a lawyer perspective then human rights are not really going to apply to you so you can't demand your original birth certificate. I know it's a bit of a stretch, but you know, if you're going to discriminate against someone or justify cruelties, the best way to do it is to take away the human rights aspect. And what better way than to say, oh, you're, you're a bit of a monster. I know it's a very basic way of drilling it down, but. No, it's, it's actually pretty, um, <laughs> it's pretty interesting. Um, so in my case, I don't have my original birth certificate and I, don't think at this point I can petition for it. I've been in reunion for, oh my God, it's since 1999. So however many years that is, a long time. Um, and I think just last year, so over over here, um, all of that is governed by the state. So it's not a federal program. There's no federal law that governs the release of original birth certificates. It's all state by state. And so I was born in New York, in New York State. And um, so New York laws govern the release of my birth certificate. 
Um, and they were, they did not allow this until last year, but you still have to petition, I think a registry in order to get it done. I'm not exactly sure. Somebody I know who was born in White Plains, which is a different city. I was born in Buffalo, which is over on the west side of the state. This person was born closer to New York City, petitioned for his birth certificate and got it. But of course, the problem even with um, the two things, the problem even with getting that original birth certificate is that the names on it were often falsified. So that the information even on the original that is the legal birth certificate for the child that was born that becomes me or this other person, those names were not legitimate. They were um, fake. So he's at a dead end. He can't find the people who were his um, blood parents. Now on mine, mine had, um, mine would have had, I've not seen it, would have had the false name that my mother gave when she was in the home. And I don't know whether she would have given, I think she didn't give a name of the father. I think that's one of the ways that they leveraged the children out of their mother's hands in the era that I was adopted in, was that if you didn't have a name of the father on the birth certificate, you were particularly vulnerable to legal machinations that meant that um, you, you could relinquish the child easier, you did relinquish the child more easily. And I was adopted through Catholic charities from a Catholic um orphanage, a very famous one. The funny story about that is this is a new job for me. So I started this job in January of 2020. And um, we immediately sort of went into lockdown shortly after that. But but the thing is that my boss, it turns out, is from Buffalo. So um, when I told him that I was born there, he's like, oh, wow, that's really crazy. And then I told him I was adopted. And then I told him the institution that had housed me where I was born and then housed me. And he paused for a really long time and he told me that his father used to threaten him with leaving him at this place if he was a bad boy. And, um, I mean, he was like tearing up. He's like, I cannot believe that you lived in that horrible place. I was, you know, I was like, it was three months. I thank you. I, you know, what do you say when people say, my God, it was horrible? Well, yeah, it was. Um, and it still is for lots of people. And we're going back there, I'm afraid, in sort of quick order because of what's happening in the Supreme Court here. Yes, that's quite terrifying. And then the, the conflation of the of the arguments as well. You know, of, of I, it bothers me when people immediately jump into the abortion argument when you're talking adoption. And you think, how, sorry, how did we make that leap? You know, separate issues. And I'd be grateful because I say, you know, 1960s, obviously, we, we predate, you know, the legislation. So it, it makes it sort of tricky. But yeah, people, when, when they just make that immediate jump, you know that the next thing they're possibly going to say is to talk gratitude. But aren't you grateful? You, sh- you should be so grateful. And I'm thinking, I am on one level, but not so grateful that I wouldn't like to have my original birth certificate, please. You know, I, yeah. I would like to, you know. I'd like to be a human being like other human beings who have their original birth certificate. My birth certificate, like my parents gave me my birth certificate, I guess when I was 18, so I could see it, but it was, it's the, it's the um, amended one. So it doesn't, it, uh, it's a piece of green paper that says what my name is, says what my birth date is, um, says who my, I think it might say who my parents are. And then it has a, like a impressed seal, like a pressed seal in it, but it has right. no other information on it. Oh, it does say what city I was born in, but that's it. 
makes me think of a little title deed if it's got the little sort of a impressed seal on it, you know, or a, rece a receipt, you know. I, I More like the receipt, although I do have the receipt for me, too. I know oh. what my parents paid for me. Oh, my God. You have loads of information. Yeah. This wow. happened after my father died. My my mother was always um, much more open to uh, the truth of the family, I guess, than my, my father wanted to pretend that things were not that way. But um, so after my father died, I got a lot of that paperwork, um, which I still have. So, but I yes, I have the I have the note from some monsignor to my dad acknowledging that he had spent X number of dollars. Oh wow. Um, to process the adoption or um, as a don't, I think it was as a donation, which is. Oh, you know, yes. Really, oh, yes. Because, yeah. you know, we can't have it can't be, you know, human trafficking. It has to be you've made this lovely donation to to the church. Um, so, yeah. 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 And it's, it's really interesting to think about the inhumanity of. Well, first of all, we can start with Heathcliff, because at least he comes to Wuthering Heights as a whole person, which, you know, not Frankenstein. <laughs> And yeah, I he's think he's cuter. It's <laughs> for a start. <laughs> Super cuter. So much cuter. Um, yeah. So, um, but did you read this when you were like an adolescent and just love Heathcliff? Oh, God, and yes. forget about you have the that different, yeah, the, the teenage girl thing of oh, he's the ideal date. But as you say, they get a little older and you think, mm, maybe not. Maybe not yeah. so much. Yeah. Once you get to college and you encounter this book, you, um, you realize, I mean, I don't know how I read over The Hanging Puppy. How did I read over The Hanging Puppy and think <laughs> that this was a great guy? Like, that would never happen again. Like, yeah. it's, um, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting, the different responses to, um, to Heathcliff, period, and all of the ways in which, um, I don't know, I've taught this book now mm, maybe eight or ten times, a, a pretty good number of times. Two students who would have been, who are 18, 19 years old, many of them female, um, although that obviously doesn't control anything. But um, they, their response to him is to, is, is, is to treat him as if he's sort of this really wonderful stranger come to town to shake everything up. Like it's, it becomes a really American narrative in that way in my student's hands. Hands. And so he's a he's the kind of monster that that's perfectly okay because you know Wuthering Heights might as well be uh, X town in Kansas or Colorado in the in the 19th century. And so they they treat him like a gunslinger almost. Like he just he's there to upset everything, and they love it. It's the anarchy <laughs> in them. Um, but then I mean, if you're looking at something like I mean, the next step in the progression of dehumanizing, although Heathcliff is plenty dehumanized. Um, and of course, he has to die in the end, too. All the adoptions always have to Absolutely. die. Absolutely. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Either that or be so subsumed in the adoptive family that, that you can forget that they're adopted. Yeah. I think, um, I'm trying to think of where this happens, but it's, yeah. Anyway, it, but with... Um, the uh, Ishiguro novel, mm. the there's this tension between whether the children are pieces of things or are themselves. So they're literally thought of as parts, like they're like mm -hmm. um, 
one of these lots where you take your discarded car and then they're sort of predated for the parts that can be used for other cars. And so, um, but then they demonstrate or they're asked to demonstrate or somehow Ishiguro's brilliance is that he can demonstrate that parts are not holes. Like there's something anti-gestalt about personhood or humanity that once you can take it to parts or dissect it or perceive of it as party, um, it ceases to be human, which is kind of interesting to think about because then when you shift over to Frankenstein, he's fundamentally a chimera. I mean, he's built of all kinds of parts and who knows what parts. At least in Shelley's novel, there's like two sentences. He comes from slaughterhouses and um, dissection tables. And so... So one presumes that he might have a thigh bone from a horse or a cow tooth or something. So he's fundamentally a chimera. He's outside um, per- perfect humanity or pure humanity. And his partsiness then makes him even more monstrous and less personally. I read this essay where um, the article was, or the author was, was arguing that Frankenstein isn't human, can't be human, not because of his chimeral um, essence, but because he had no family. Like he doesn't, he doesn't have a family at all. And my feeling is that he's just over family. Like he has so much family. Every part of him had a family that, um, that it's really the other problem that he has so much family. (laughs) Like there's, I mean, all the way, he might have like a stud. He might have actually, if he comes from a horse at all, like he might have a stud role or dog, like he might have a pedigree in addition to all of, but yeah. But this person was arguing that from the anti-gestalt position, or the, maybe the pro-gestalt position, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but that the pieces all come together into something whole that does not have a family. I don't yeah. know. And then he gets the rejection from his... I'm reluctant to say father, but from his creator, yeah. who's just horrified that he's brought this creature into being and then spends the rest of, you know, rest of existence running away and fleeing. And then he does the classic thing of wandering, looking through windows, has to teach himself language, has to learn the social skills himself. I, 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 I like Frankie's monster. I could, it, some bits resonated, you know, the, the, the endless yeah. quest and the people recoiling and running away. I probably just have that effect on my students as well at times. <laughs> but you know, it's it's a thing. It's a thing. You know, the, the clones get it too with, you know, the, the people looking after them are scared to touch them. They recoil um, as well. And answers are not forthcoming. Reunions are, you know, they're flawed. But it's all, but the law just, well, Frankenstein's beyond the law altogether. But with the clones, the law has worked to make this all legal for the greater good because people need kidneys and lungs etc etc could be very cruel and say people continue to commission babies to in, as infertility cures or whatever but that if i i'll be you know somebody will yell at me for for saying that but i i i think the parallel the parallels i think are are there I think like every good dystopian novel, um, like The Handmaid's Tale, Ishiguro is taking a thing that exists and just extending it slightly into its implication. Yeah. <clears throat> so, for instance, I mean, you're exactly right. You can 
if you if we can if we can think of personhood as a used car lot or people or bodies as used car lots or whatever these are, I wish I could. Uh, it's just too early in the morning for me to think of the right word for these. But you know where you where you go and you get a used part because you need a used transmission and that's cheaper than a new one. Um, if we can think of people as repositories for things that we can use, it's the end of the utilitarian argument. It's the end of the people as useful or labor units or um, having civic purpose. It's that it's that logical end. If you can do that, it's the logical end of um, organ donorship. Honestly, yeah. I was I was reading an interesting. Um, gosh, what is that book? I think it was a book, but it might have been a part of a book about um, because here we have again, if you're thinking about adoption and abortion, um, there are lots of states who've introduced what's called a heartbeat bill, yeah. and that restricts abortion to um, before the fetus has a heartbeat. And I kept thinking about organ donation in that context, in that legal context. And again, I have no law, but in essence, in order to harvest organs from a, a person who is, um, has said that they wish to be an organ donor, you have to keep the heart beating all the way to the end, to the harvest of the heart itself. Otherwise, the organs are not usable. And so, to a certain extent, heartbeat bills seem to violate the um, an understanding of life that is conveniently different for organ donation as, than it is for fetuses. And of course, the argument is, well, a fetus is potentially going to live, and an organ donor is not potentially going to live. But I think it intersects... Um, certainly intellectualized or at least thinking conceptualized ideas of what life is or how we know one is alive um, and legal ones like the idea of what it means to be legally dead or legally alive is is contextual and historical like clearly and um inconsistent across different civic uses for the body yeah and I suppose it touches on the definition of what constitutes a human, mm -hmm. who is eligible to have rights, who's who is eligible to avoid being discriminated against. Yeah, there's. I wonder what it says about us as a as a society. It's interesting, and that we have to we have to veto things and hide things and fabricate certain you know legal fictions to justify or or enable you know, various outcomes. Um, I was trying to find my certificate of mental hygiene that I mentioned the last day. I have yet to find it. It does exist because, you know, I, I probably should get it laminated and bring it to class someday. But I had to have that, you know, before I was able to be classed as adoptable, I had to have that. So I don't know ex exactly what that related to, but I'm quite proud of it. It's, you know, the proudest certificate I have. I, I just like it because it's, you know, yeah, human you know, viable person here. She's, she's sort of good to go. Um, so yeah, that I had planned to find it for today, but it's, it's obviously, it will, it will show up. It will turn up. Do you think that comes out of the eugenics stuff, Alice? I think it does. Possibly. I think so. I think people, yeah, as you say, it's like the receipt or the title deeds. 
you know, but back in the day, certainly, I mean, I was kind of not marketed as, but sent to a very fair skinned, blue eyed couple, because at that stage, I still was quite blonde and blue eyed. And there was, you know, a bit of Irish ancestry going on as well, because they were very into the matching, as we know, matching by mm -hmm. physical characteristics, whether that was a kindness of you will fit well, we're mammals, and we are more likely to trust people who look like us, being slightly sort of facetious, or whether it was the secrecy thing, because we, our generation, there was still some doubt over, should you be told? You know, then that was replaced by tell children as soon as possible. Going back to Buddy the Elf, they had to wait till he was six foot three. But yeah, but I mean, I, I, I have people, I know people my age who didn't find out till much later in life. Or indeed, uh, maybe after their, their parents had died, they discover they're adopted. And it, that does mess with the head a bit. So at least there's some progress made over the last century of, you know, policy uh, behaviors, I guess. Yeah, in the U.S. it was like that um, in the same period that I have a... So what's really interesting is that in my documents that I have... Um, they show prog a pro so an initial sort of height, weight, not height, length, I guess, weight, and um, all the rest of that business. Um, but then the second bit is um, impossible because children. So so we know that the initial report on my physical statistics was probably falsified, and then after that, like the third or fourth one. Um, is all of the like she follows eyes, she follows faces, she like can grasp things. You know, they're just they're basically testing again that I'm a, I'm a normal human being and therefore a good product to be sent to out into um, this family that is expecting a child that's like them. And my yeah. parents uh, congratulated themselves that they told us that we were adopted from before I can remember, but they never told anybody else. Like it yeah. was always, it was always us and it was never to be discussed because they wanted nobody to know that same because of course uh, they're, yeah, it was about their infertility. So I think that's, that's different. Now. I think that's very different now, at least in the U S among um, matched or at least, uh, domestic in race adoptions. I think that's the point. Yeah. I think people don't pretend anymore. Yeah, no, it's similar here too. And obviously Northern Ireland's quite good because you can get your birth certificate at 18. Um, mm. Depending on your date of birth, you might have to have some counseling first. So there is a bit more openness there. Um, obviously though, I mean, donor anonymity could be repeating the same mistakes if parents opt not to tell of genetic origin. So there's still some of the stigma and the, you know the, the various veils of secrecy that you know that have maybe carried over you know 23andme and ancestry.com are undoing all, i mean you're evidence of this they're undoing all of that like if you want donor secrecy you can't do dna testing in this way. you can't have yeah. that open in the way you have it open it does it uh, it, it explodes all of the secrets yeah. and um so i think that those people who believed that they were securely um getting gametes that nobody would know and that they would be just you know 
Yeah, they would be people unto and from themselves only are are in for a shock because that's, I don't think we have that. I don't think we have that anymore. I mean, and, and yeah. to a certain degree, it's um, it's a detriment, isn't it? Um, it's a detriment in the sense that that there is this. I think there's a and people like Kim Kimberly Layton talk about this pretty frequently. Sally Hasslinger and a lot of people talk about this actually. That there's something about a personhood and agency and personhood and the predominance of the biological story as controlling agency and personhood not helpful if that makes any sense at all but that um well this is in carol singley's book too uh, adopting america that that if you that we have myths of personhood that require um, us to believe that we create who we are and that being unkinned allows that even if it's even if it's only fictive so for instance you can think of Frankenstein this, this is even Heathcliff as self-made the personhood is self-made the body doesn't get self-made obviously but somehow that's disconnected or at least the books are asking about the connection between humanity and personhood and um, the body of the person himself, herself, itself. Does that, am I making any sense? Well, yes, because I think it ties into the, I suppose, one of the debates actually that, that's going on in this part of the world at the, at the moment about the notion of what is reductiveness. Is that maybe the right, the right term? Um, I mean, the, the term birth mother. In the Irish legislation, as contento, the term itself is is contentious. Although I sometimes still use it if you're trying, it's handy if you're trying to distinguish. Um, but it, I can see why mothers might see it as reductive that it's not just about that one that one act. Um, having given birth a few times, I would say it's quite a significant act. And actually, if I'm classed as a you know a birth offspring or birth child or something. I can to play devil's advocate. I can see it as why is that one word not? Maybe it's too emotional or too a painful reminder. But they haven't yet come up with a term, as far as I'm aware, to replace it in the legislation. So there's talk of maybe original mother or first mother. I think genetic mother because if you're thinking family, I, I like the term birth family. I know in some of the Hague cases they talk of the birth country to see, you know, where a should a child be returned or not if they've been abducted. So I don't know. The, the old term natural mothers, I always got a kick out of that. Natural mother. Okay, so so we're unnatural or, you know, and it's was artificial reproduction. No one says that anymore because it's like, so I, did, I remember someone asking me once, were you grown in a lab? You know, and I said, maybe. I do not know. <laughs> I cannot, I cannot answer that, sir. Good day. You know, so there is that sort of the element of, you know, where to go. But, na- I know, <laughs> but names matter. I guess names, at the, if, you, if you don't have one, if you don't have your original, I mean, Frankenstein doesn't have it. He's just the monster, the creature. Always thought that. They could, you know, could they not have called him Bob or Bert or just, he might have been in less of a mood if he'd had some kind of name, you know. Um, yeah, it's a strange <laughs> one, but it, I guess it matters, you know, with well, naming I mean, stuff. 
Oh, yeah. No, I, you know, Lorraine Dusky runs the um, First Mother Forum, I believe it is. And um, they've been fighting about fighting. They've been struggling with what to call themselves and how to think of themselves. And of course, there's Concerned United Birth Mothers Cub, which is the original sort of birth mother rights group. Yeah. Um, and as an editor, I can tell you that this is a this is a struggle. And I tend to like I had a complaint for I guess the last issue before this one um, from someone who was like, why are we not making a single word out of birth mother anymore? Because for a long time I was. And then um, I had a conversation with a group of people who were like, this is it's a, a mother and there should be a space with birth because then they can claim mother as separate from the birth part. And I was like, oh, OK, that makes sense to me. But and and I'm also hearing Alice gestational mother. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah we could live with um, surrogacy gestational as well. mother, but natural and real are um in the Yes. Way I don't I, I have mixed feelings about that one, you know. Um I quite like mothers of loss, but then I could see how perhaps maybe adoptive parents might take issues with that or you know but I, I can I, that one I could I could live with I, maybe it's too emotive I, I really I'm curious to see what what I know I'm be. really interested in what they're going to come up one. with I'd really yeah and, talk and as to names do you know what your your did your um family name you before they relinquished you they did my well nobody knew um I will call her birth mother. Well, sometimes I call her. I call her the mothership. Sometimes she seems to like. She <laughs> likes that one, you know. Um, she did. I mean, she she called me Karen Marie, which is very different to then my, my folks. Then my folks nearly called me Gladys, and mm. then they opted for Alice. I mean, Alice was bad enough in the seventies. Gladys, I think, actually could be quite cool now. But um, yeah, so that would have been that would have been people get a kick out of that. Um, yeah, she'd call me Karen Marie. Obviously, no no surname, but yeah, I've since sort of tracked them down my indigenous newfoundland connection and there's you know there were 12 in the family i managed to meet um maternal grandmother birth grandmother whatever whatever i could I can call her met her uh shortly in the reunion she's since passed away so that was amazing and it, she said I bet you never thought you'd be sitting here talking to me and i just <laughs> thought you'd no awkwardness that she just summed it up amazingly you know and I came home with jars of moose meat my uncles offered to take me out you know the next time I come over they'll take me out shooting which you know I'm from Northern Ireland I can't that was just scarce you know I have we have the fear but um I certainly would like to go you know walked out saw the scenery it was just really good you know it it, it was nice it was wasn't it weird to see to see people the versions of your face is there a strong resemblance in your family yes origin? Yes, I look, that's what everyone, apparently we have the same mannerisms. Uh, we have the same feet because photographs were taken. And one of my daughters, you know, we're all, so, well, husband said, it's like when we're walking together, he said, uh, it's like watching the weest woman competition, which is not a real thing because we're all so small because I'm five oh. foot, she's four foot 11, daughter's, daughter's five foot, you know, we're, we're quite, husband's tall, everybody else is tall, but, you know, and among the aunts and uncles, some are tall and short, but just with, with me, and you know the mother the daughter he said did you ever see a row of such small women all together you know we the, the weest woman competition he got the but he was a bit freaked out because he said you know in all the years i've known you you've never had anyone that looked like you because well, the children i think look more like him so 
you know, when, when the cousins were gathered, he said, everyone in this room, he said, most people in this room have the same eyes as you. He was, he had to go sit down for a while, you know, and he has lots of cousins, so he's used to that. But it was weird for him that I had the, you know, people, I, I liked that it. it was great. That was, you know, they were, they were lovely. I have to say that they very welcoming and, and very lovely people. I, I struck lucky, you know, it was, it was good. They've been, yeah, they've been kind. Oh. So one of the things, Alice, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, because I don't know very much other than what I've read, is the situation with mother and baby homes over mm-hmm. in Ireland that's been developing over the last couple of years. And mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love to catch up on where that is in terms of the law and also in terms of just what what the, I, I think of it as blowback from that might be, because we've got yes. another situation here, which is um, boarding schools. So the boarding school movement in the U.S. and Canada was to move Indigenous children out of Indigenous families into institutions that would re-educate them and whiten them, essentially civilize them. But what's happening is that people are digging up um, the grounds around these boarding schools and discovering that hundreds, literally hundreds of unmarked graves of these children. Mm-hmm. And this, it, it started, I believe, in Canada. Um, but they're now doing this all over the place, it, well, all over the place, wherever there were boarding schools, to discover what the death rate was and, and who those children were and to return the bodies to their um, tribal um, families, really. Uh, and then there's there's been some, legis- well, some legislative, I think it, it's mostly devolved to the states again, um, action on this but it was in the news for a really long time it's kind of fallen out of the news because of um omicron but i wonder what what's happening over there yes we followed you right yeah there's there's so much there's a lot of interest because i i'm in contact with um through other adoption networks um People in South Korea, adoptees in South Korea, they, they're quite fascinated by this. So, yeah, the world does seem to be watching. I mean, the report is largely at the risk of being controversial, largely discredited. And the courts found that they really disregarded testimony. I know, I know as far as I'm aware, testimony has been destroyed as well. They really, the mothers, many were quite annoyed, angry and, and, and hurt by it. Uh, I mean, the first page of the executive summary, if memory serves, and this is one for the Northern Ireland's having its separate report going on. So I'm, I'm on about the one in Republic of Ireland. There was a mm-hmm. paragraph on the first page that struck me and it said, really, you know, the, the homes, the church, they took these women in when their families had cast them out. Now I'm paraphrasing slightly, but I had to throw the thing across the room and go and you know, lie down for a while. When I read that, I thought, well, there's victim blaming, you know, and if, if families were cap, cap, if families were casting people out, I wonder why that was. Would the church maybe have had anything, the church and the state have anything to do with that, with stigma, you know, and, and shame and everything else and the secrecy. So, yeah, I think there's, there's going to have to be another one. There's going to have to be a revisiting, getting, you know, testimony. Be It's one thing to be listened to, another to be really really heard. And I mean, there's so many women, I would imagine, don't trust the system, don't want to talk, you know, are opposed to having their secrets coming out because they're of an age. There's the shame. How do you get over the personal 
shame. And law was law, church, society, complicit in that, in you know the the shaming of people, the dehumanizing of them. Uh, again, fiction sometimes is better placed to bring about change. The movie Philomena, it's not perfect, and of course, adoptee is con he's conveniently deceased, so she can leave the graveyard kind of upbeat. That scene, you know, jars with me. But I remember my my mother-in-law when she saw the film, she said, "Oh," and when she she'd known my story a long time, when she saw the movie, she said, uh, "Oh, now I get why you're annoyed." <laughs> yes, but it took that for her to sort of say, ah, "I see now why you write angry things." You know, I, yes, yes, I am sort of just justifiable anger. Um, so yeah, it got, anything that gets people talking, law they don't necessarily people. I don't know why they tend maybe not to warm to legal debate. But if you know, if something's written nicely or gets the attention or taps the emotions, then then you know, yeah. So we await the truth. At least we've moved on from denial. There was quite a bit of denial, as in, oh, these numbers are exaggerated. There aren't. There aren't that many babies buried, but yeah, it's coming out. And and the bit about um, vaccine trials, maybe on the unbaptized baby, the illegitimate, uh, horrible terms, illegitimate baby. Did they even have souls? You know, I'm I'm being slightly dramatic, but you when you read things and hear various testimonies, this is maybe what was what was said. You know, it's just Handmaid's Tale. People think it's fiction. No, <laughs> no. Nothing fictional there. It's just being presented to a modern, you know, an audience to say, hey, th th this stuff happens. We'll put a red dress on it. People will pay, pay attention. But there's nothing sci-fi about it. You know. No, it's, again, it's a good dystopian novel. It tells you where the current practices may lead. I mean, that's yeah. kind of its job. And it's, it's um, dystopian novels are good for that. Dystopian movies are good for that. So that you can... You don't have to bear the burden of probability yourself. Like you can see somebody working on, I, you know, this sort of skewed feeling about something, and then you see it's, uh, you see somebody working on its logical end, and then that feeling becomes solidified for you. Like that's now I know why that's wrong because it could go here. Or now I know why I should think more about this because it could we could end up mm -hmm. in this particular world, and um, as long as the world is portrayed as the place you don't want to be, then um, that fiction will work to to at least alert people that there's something going on. Yeah, I mean I don't know. Like I again I've taught Frankenstein too a, a thousand times, not a thousand. That's hyperbole, obviously, but. Um, a number of times, and my students all come to it having had it at some other place, and decided that it's it is a warning against scientific discovery, and that's where they all start. Like we should not, even if we can do something, we should not do that. And so then they start talking about um, cloning human beings, which you know is where Shigori takes it. But they start talking about this is my dog. They I start see talking Darby, that about eyes lovely. Hello. <laughs> They start Sorry. talking about, um, that's all right, about how we shouldn't clone things because then we'll clone humans and it'll be terrible. And um, it's a way of treating that book, but it's, it's, it's really reductive if what you're only looking for is that particular thing or only one particular thing. 
Like I think if I wanted to take Frankenstein as a warning, I wouldn't take it as a warning against scientific um, experimentation. I might take it as a warning about the thing that we're talking about, which is how to understand who has rights and why they have rights and who is human and why, what makes people human. That, or at least an examination or, or an impetus to examine those things, I think. Um, and so that's what, and maybe that just is like, I'm, you know, older than 18 now, obviously. Um, <laughs> and so I come to it with, with a, a, a worldview that's obviously different, but yeah. And, I, but I think, you know, if I think I, if I'm thinking about The Handmaid's Tale or even, um, even any of these books that we're talking about, less fluttering hype maybe, but, um, it is that question, right? Who, who gets to do what, and why do they get to do it, and what role does common decency play, and how we treat people, and what role does a sort of institutional call to decency play, and who gets to say, like, who is the person who controls that particular narrative of human life? Or who, yeah. who, what's the institution that does that? Yeah, true. Um, so yeah, I'm, just I suppose harking back, someone said to me, "Why, why gothic fiction? Why do you see gothic fiction as you know a sort of a possibly a template for lawmaking in this in this area or law reform?" And I'm thinking, well, if something is, I guess, if if it's horrific, it gets your attention. It mm-hmm. may get your sympathy, may evoke sympathy. It focuses the mind, um, and I'm guessing fiction, you know, it could be tied to revolution and to sparking social change. Because if you say, look, behold, look what's happening here, you know, who are, who are, who do, who do we monsterize apart from adoptees, but even wider society, who are we demonizing? And what does it, what does it say about us? You know, who are we othering? Who are we, you know, mistrusting or seeing as less than human? So it's got the wider implications than just beyond surrogacy law reform you know and the gothic is is nice too because it's one removed from reality so it's easier to accept like you don't have to if i'm faced over and over again with the news Mm. um the news is harder because it's here happening now in real time with people i recognize in real ways that are that almost they're almost too real if you can move it into like castles and princesses and and um really weird magical ghosties who knock on your window or or um institutions where (laughs) cloning happens and then the people are taken apart that um it seems to be easier because it's easier to have the ideas because of the removal like there's just one step away from what you actually have to experience, you can almost—it's almost easier to think about in that way. Yeah, yeah, it's more palatable or digestible for people that don't really think, "Oh, I'm watching a great story," and then you hope that the voice at the back of their head might say, "Yeah, but you know, yeah. that that this could be happening elsewhere." Oh, and if they spot the injustice in something, rather than. You know, they'll soon get fed up if I'm out on, you know, on a soapbox and saying, look mm-hmm. how, how wrong this is. But if it's, you know, parceled up nicely as a sort of a, here's a great story, you know, 
behold well, elf. Yeah, and everybody loves a story. There's yeah. no no need not to narrativize. But even the law is a narrative. It's just kind of a dry one. It is. It is. Well, it just depends on the depends on the the topic. You know, try trying to trying to win people trying to win people over. Um, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing, but you know, the case law in this area, case law on surrogacy, there are horror stories. You know, the older cases on adoption of no contact orders of siblings being separated. I do. I warn people if they're getting, you know, a, a, a child, um, a child law lecture, it's going to veer into child protection. And, you know, it usually comes with a bit of a warning because you can be sure there will be people in your class who've been adopted or who've been through the system who maybe are care leavers and stuff. So I think increasingly we have to give the a trigger warning and, you know, yourself, someone will come up at the end and say, you know, that resonated or here's my story or even more heartbreakingly, they might say, God, yeah, I have family. I have sisters, brothers somewhere. I'm not allowed to see them. They're only little. What can I do? And you have to think, well, I'm ashamed to say the law isn't always the most helpful. It's more concerned with building building the walls and putting out vetoes and hiding things and you know how many fires were did, did orphanages succumb to the number of people that say I have records and I had records but the convent burnt down I mean the, the world must that's global warming right there that's where it came from was all the well, the various all the burning <laughs> all the paperwork all burnt all gone on a fire how handy you know pardon me for being cynical I'm sure some probably did go up and fight yeah oh whoops you know so it's a wonder where I'm cynical and grumpy. Don't if I hear one more, I went up and lost in a fire. You know, no, it didn't. So, yeah. And what's coming is all of those records were lost in a computer malfunction. That's the one that's coming. Oh God, yes, that's the next. That'll be the next one. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Oh dear. Yeah. So, all all we can do is keep poking at them and say, you know, be careful. You know, if you can preserve title deeds, if you can preserve cases. You know. Yeah. Yeah, save that paperwork that shows you're a thing. That was traded. Exactly. Keep, that keep was traded. the receipts. Always keep the receipts. That's what but we you know, them. I sometimes I wonder though, to in to to what degree all of it, like all of family production is somehow enters civic the civic world as a commodification. So mm. You know, for instance, even a birth certificate. Darby. Darby agrees. He's, there's, there's somebody, I have a, I built a little free library for my front yard. And so every time somebody wants oh. to check on a book, he goes to the door and barks at them. I, I need to put a note on it that says my dog's harmless. He just likes to make noise at you. He's um, a librarian. He's the custodian. He is. He's, <laughs> he's like the, the malignant spirit. Um, anyway. So, yes, we should probably wind up. Emily, thank yeah. you so much. It's been a really oh, good good chat. It's been a good crack, as they say here. And we've, we've all, I know they don't say that over there. <laughs> different meanings. No. But, uh, crack has a very different meaning here. Different meaning. You know, here, here, it's a good thing, <laughs> generally. Um, but, yeah, we'll, we'll get the world put to rights at some stage. We'll keep on trying to get people to to somehow listen. You know, yeah. but you know, it, it it's better than it was. 
I, I, yeah. I know my entire enormous, ginormous birth family. I got that, um, despite and around and because. And my older brother also. So there have been there have been changes that have facilitated at least some knowledge of some families. I think the harder cases are going to be coming out of transnational adoption, where yes. the record keeping is different and the obscuration is more profound. Um, but hopefully, yeah, I don't know, maybe there will be some progress. Question. I mean, I know there's there's talk of a new. They're working on new protocols for international surrogacy. There's some debate over whether domestic adoptions should be tied in with those, but it's a very, very slow progress. There's an acknowledgement of that limping parentage can be harmful, and that term itself is flawed. I don't even. I've never even heard that term. What is yeah, limping, the, the limping parentage? The delay in being classed as someone's child if you've been conceived abroad, born of a surrogate. I don't think it's a perfect term. It does make me think, though, of this sort of shuffling creature. So maybe it's not totally inappropriate, but it's, I, I don't know. They could. How else do you describe the delay in belonging to someone, the delay in being given, afforded legal parentage if the genetics and the legalities don't don't align and don't match. It's civic kinship. Like, yeah, the the I was reading at the beginning of COVID about surrogate mothers who were stuck in places mm-hmm. they couldn't go anywhere to deliver their children to the surrogating parents. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. to call those commissioning, um, the commissioning, commissioning parents. Yeah. yeah, and so they were stuck with children that they never meant to to raise. Now for I don't know how long. Maybe most of them have been, um, but they couldn't. There was no nationality for these children. There was no family for these. Cho- I mean, and that's the thing I think the law has to address. Like, what, what is the legal status of, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, it's horrific. You know, stateless children, p- children left in orphanages. You know, and of what? course here we had a shift in laws. Kim Park Nelson was talking about this. Kim and um, Eliana Kim have been talking about this for a while. We had a shift in laws. That meant there were a lot of Korean children um, brought into the U.S. And then their um, citizenship was not processed correctly. And so they've been being deported back to Korea where they never, like, they, they have nothing in Korea. Yeah. And um, that's a serious problem. So stateless children, stateless adoptees, stateless, potentially stateless children, that's yeah. one. And when is. the state is still supreme. Yeah. It's the horrific the horrific is alive and well, unfortunately, and that's shameful. <laughs> shameful. You'd be ashamed to be a lawyer. So. Oh, yeah. Somebody's I got go. a board on the fine thing. So, oh, so we're out of time. So I've got to, thank you for taking part. For thank inviting you so me. Much. This was so Very much grateful. fun. I could talk to you forever. 